99 of the Throwdown Thursday podcast. I am your host, Patrick Rahal, but you can call me Patsy the Angry Nerd. And we are, of course, quarantined here in uh, the Pat Cave. Well, not so much quarantined in the Pat Cave, but uh, quarantined in Magenta Manor. And uh, so we spend a lot of time, or I do anyways, spend a lot of time in the Pat Cave because I got no place else to go, which is kind of uh, sad and and lonely. And I have to walk 12 miles away to get to my car and then another 40 miles to get to the mailbox now because all kinds of stuff is going on. There's a doings a transpiring, but we are of course part of the Dorkening Network, and uh, as such, we are brought to you by Deadly Grounds Coffee. Once you go deadly, you don't get, don't go back. I was <laughs> sorry, I got ahead of myself because I was going to the uh, Once website. Once you go deadly, you don't go to bedly. <laughs> yeah, oh, that's a good one. Uh, but I was, I was going to say that uh, you know you can find them at getdeadly.com. I kind of mushed everything together in my brain. And as mushy as my brain is, that's just the way things are going. But I am, of course, joined by my co-host on the show, my co-host in life. Let's see if I can remember all this. The Baroness of Bordeaux, the Countess of Cabernet, the Mistress of Merlot, the Real Housewife of Transylvania, the Michael Phelps of Wine, the Queen of the Monsters, and an Honorary Lizzie. Ladies and gentlemen, it is Ashes von Nightmare. So... I realized the other day that the best part of having to wear a face mask to work is that no one can see the faces that I'm making underneath. So you're like Dark Helmet. Yes. But they can see your eyes squint and they can see you roll your eyes in the back of your head. uh, Yeah, but I'm getting really good at like snarling. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Or like, you know, wearing the wearing the cloth masks, you can lightly speak. So you can say something, you can mutter something under your breath, and like no one else hears it because it's kind of trapped in your face mask. So I'm telling everyone to fuck off, and they think I'm just pleasant as all hell. Uh, they know better. They've I mean, known no, you for like they 11 years at that place. Yeah, yeah. But anyways. Yeah, so today we, uh, we are going to be discussing uh, the nearly 600-year-old character from uh, Lord of the Rings, who was, he doesn't look a day over 585. No, but he looks pretty wretched. He looks every every uh, single second of his actual age. Uh, he looks are, like an ex-boyfriend. We are looking at uh, discussing uh, Gollum slash Smeagol slash that other word. Uh, he had another name. Trahald. Trahald. He has three names, but we'll get into that. But uh, what are we doing for uh, getting into character today? I don't know. What are we doing for getting into character? We probably should have had a meeting before pressing record. Oh, what are we, we doing? We, of course, we we kid. We, we, of course, have something already decided. We are, of course, talking about, uh, in the, the vein of, of Smeagol and Gollum, characters who are generally looked at as villains, but it's not really their fault. It's they had a tragic upbringing. Like they're they didn't get enough love as bad. a kid. They're just drawn that way. Right. Or, you know, however they happen to be depicted. So do you want to go first? Or you want me to go first? Uh, so I have one. Okay. Who, and, and she is, is one of my favorite characters at this point. Uh, she is obviously considered a villain by every means. You know, a lot of people hated her, thought she was just absolutely vile throughout the series. But in reality, she's that way because that's how she was brought up. She was just trying to play the game. 
the Game of Thrones that is. I'm talking about Cersei Lannister. Cersei is not a tragic villain. Yes, she, she is, is an outright evil monster. No, she is a tragic villain because she was brought up to be the way that she is. Fucking Tywin Lannister was horrible towards her. Yes, her dad was mean to her. Maybe if her if her father loved her, she probably wouldn't have been the Cersei Lannister that we knew and and loved. See, I disagree because even as a child, uh, she committed her first murder when she was like eight. So, but it, it's it's a learned behavior. Uh, her know. father was horrible to her. She grew up without a mother. Yes. You know, like that's horrible. That's horrible for a girl. She grew up without a mother in a house of three, you know, a, a father and two brothers. And all their servants and wet nurses and, and. But they probably didn't provide the love and support that she needed, that she was looking for. No, but Janie did. I don't know. We're going to have to agree to disagree on this. We're going to, this is going to dwell, delve into like all kinds of backstory and stuff. We just don't have time to talk about it. Okay. Well, seriously. anyways. In my opinion, Fine. Cersei Lannister is a tragic villain. Okay. Uh, I'm going to take a similar route, um, and I'm going to go with Hannibal Lecter, uh, because the backstory with Hannibal. So. so, when Hannibal was very, very young, he, uh, he and his sister, he loved his sister more than anything in the world. Like the way... Jamie no, Lannister loved his sister? No, no. He, he, like, that was, he would die for her. He tried to die for her. But she was, you know, uh, she was younger. She was a little chubbier because she still had baby fat. And uh, so when it was, uh, this was during World War One. his parents were killed. And uh, him and his sister, along with several other children, uh, after the deer were gone, some of the, uh, the uh, the people in the village who were hiding out some some soldiers some not started eating the children when there were no more deer, and he attempted to uh, sacrifice himself, but instead they broke his arm and threw him threw him away, you know, tossed him to the side, and they ate his sister, and they he found uh, his sister's teeth in the stool pit uh, a couple days later. So he was forced to watch them kill and eat his sister. So that's a, a story you get in. Um, so uh, wait, so how did he become a cannibal then? How did he develop the taste for human flesh? Well, it's a weird psychic, not psychic, a psychosomatic type thing where he figured that was the worst possible thing that could ever happen. And so he started inflicting that onto other people. Um, I mean, he had to have eaten some people when he was a child because there was no other food. And if they're trying to fatten children up to eat them, they're going to give them other children to eat, I suppose. So there's a good chance that he actually ate his sister as well. So he became... More uh, a cannibal, more because he was into the finer things in life. Like he liked uh, certain types of vehicles; they had to be supercharged, not turbocharged, because he didn't like the lag that turbo had. So he had to have supercharged uh, Jaguars. That's what he drove. That's what he liked. He liked all the finest things, and if something offended him 
or his very delicate sensibilities, uh, that would be his next meal. He would always keep track of people who were rude to him. He said whenever convenient, he preferred to eat the rude. The free-range rude is what he called them. Because he looked at it as um, doing society a favor, but also dining on, like, you know, he would have, you know, like we saw on the show, you know, he wanted to make uh, beef lungs, but instead of beef lungs, he got some guy, you know, and took his lungs. You know, there was always, it was never just like, oh, I'm going to, you know, eat a, a chunk of his thigh meat. It was always something very... Um, analogous to some sort of like you know, uh, you know, patois was a, a, um, a like goose liver, but he would eat actual liver. You know, like the, whatever he would he would find the human equivalent of the animal, uh, the animal world. So I'm gonna go with uh, Hannibal Lecter for one. I have one more. I don't know if you have another. I, one. I have a couple more. Okay, go ahead. So in a similar vein, uh, as far as Hannibal goes, I'm going to go with Dexter Morgan. Okay. Because, yes, he's he's a killer. He murders people very neatly and cleanly, may I add. But it's because of what happened to him. Again, it's kind of like a psychosomatic thing. Something that happened to him as a child that uh, through... Going through, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word. Um, I don't say training with his step, not stepfather, but adoptive father. Um, Harry, Harry. Yeah, but but that's not the word I'm looking. But like, he his adopted his adopted father. Uh, saw the potential for Dexter to do horrible things and tried to get him to use it for good. He tried to, like, steer him. Yeah, yeah, kind of like that. Kind of like, you know, taking focus, something... Focus his ref- murderous rage. Right, refocusing, uh, you know, his his intention. So don't just kill anyone, you know, out of out of just the sheer whim of, of wanting to commit the act of murder, but do it with intent. Do it, you know, to people who actually deserve... To you know, have their comeuppance. People you know, who people slip who, through the system, right? Which is why him working in forensics is so perfect because he gets to see firsthand all of these people that are slipping through the cracks of the system. Because let's face it, our criminal justice system isn't perfect. Like I always say, there's a reason it's called the criminal justice system and not the victim justice system. Right. So he's able to almost like rewire himself to, you know, so he can still satisfy this murderous rage that he has, which is weird because he's a very uh, mellow. He's very calm. Yeah, very, very calm, very patient person. He doesn't really express his emotions. Because, yeah, he doesn't really have emotion for the most part. Although that changes as the story goes on. But but anyways, so yeah, you know, because of his his upbringing, how he became orphaned, and ultimately, you know, uh, his adoptive father seeing this potential in him and trying to rewire his brain, so to speak. You know, he he was a villain, but he was a villain that you kind of rooted for. Yeah, he's a he's a bad guy, but he's also the good guy because you know, while he's killing people, he's killing bad people right yeah um 
I agree with that one. Um, and that's a good show. You should definitely watch the first few seasons, especially where he finally meets his brother. That one's intense. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to go. <clears throat> I did come up with another one while we were discussing things, uh, which won't be of any surprise to anybody. But I'm going to go with uh, Darth Vader slash Anakin Skywalker. Uh, he has a very tragic backstory. You know, he had to get he was a slave and he had to get taken away from his mother. And by the time he came back, you know, that's when she was you know, pretty much dead. Um, and he, you know, he was raised, he was taking, taken at a time where he had all these, uh, he had friends, he had, you know, relationships, he was interacting with people all the time. Then he was indoctrinated by the Jedi to just, it's like, no, you are, you can't have emotions, you can't have attachments, you can't do this, you can't do that, which is why they generally take children like, you know, infants who haven't developed, you know, any of any personality or, or attachments to anything yet. Or, or the ability to uh, learn how to uh, form attachments because, you know, these things go against, you know, the nature of human beings and Anakin being a human. Like, I know there are a lot of different species in Star Wars, but with this particular character, you know, he was ruled by his emotions, you know, all the time. And usually those emotions were rage. And he did what he did. I mean, it's canon. It's, you, you know, you can't change it. It's just how it is. Because of the love he had for his wife and their future child, and he was concerned, so he didn't want uh, anything to happen to her. And um, and I've said this before on other shows that you know it, that's the reason, like the Jedi's, you know, super strict adherence to these to these rules and regulations is what drives so many uh, characters to the dark side, and. You know, then that's what we saw with Anakin. You know, he loved Padme. He didn't want anything bad to happen to her. But, uh, you know, where he wasn't able to form emotions or, or attachments or emotional bonds to people and learn how to trust and tell when someone was, like, bullshitting him and, and lying to him, he was so easily manipulated by uh, Palpatine that, you know, he did all these atrocious things that we saw. So that's my second one. You got one more, you said? So I have a couple. I'm going to keep it brief. So first one being Frankenstein's monster, because he that's didn't good. ask to be created. He was just created. And because he was an amalgamation of a bunch of different body parts and and just different things, he was grotesque. So in his in his you know quest for love and acceptance and trying to figure out pretty much what the meaning of life is, what the meaning of his life is. Why am I here? You know, which is a question. It's it's kind of a human question to ask. You know, uh, he was put in peril accidentally by, you know, townsfolk uh, scared of him, running away from him. Well, and he accidentally killed that girl. And he, I was going to say, and he accidentally killed that girl trying to save her. You know, not realizing his own strength. Yeah, he so, threw her because they were playing, you know, with with the flowers, and she threw the flower into the lake, and then he threw her into the lake. You know, not understanding because he still had. Well, because Doctor Frankenstein made him, created him, brought him to life, and that's pretty much about it. And he used the wrong brain. Right, he used the uh, the Abby Normal brain. The Abby Abby Normal's brain. Uh, but he didn't ask to be that way, 
and he's almost childlike yeah in nature he has this childlike curiosity and i think we talked about that we touched on that when we actually covered frankenstein's monster the universal, the universal monster yeah. series that we did but you know he's just it's it's tragic because he didn't ask to be this way he just is and he doesn't understand why he's this way because he it, it's it's just circumstance it has nothing to do with him you know and and you know ultimately he does find love which is great but even then you know that love needs to be created yes yeah, you know it's... and and it's uh such a such a sad but interesting story and lastly is maleficent yep you know yep. she's one of the woodland fairy folks she just happens to accidentally fall in love with the wrong person who takes advantage of her and cuts her wings off and in this this rage that develops she becomes the the disney maleficent that we see in the sleeping beauty film yeah, I mean, it would have been nice if her name wasn't, you know, Maleficent, <laughs> you know, like, to start with. Oh, I, my child is a lovely, gentle fairy. What should we call her? Evil! I love it. I dig it. Let it go. But but anyways, like, so it's, it's her tragic story. Uh, this, you know, her trying to fall in love, fall, not trying, but falling in love with someone who reciprocated that love but then in the end ultimately betrayed her as to why she becomes the the the, the powerful sorceress that she is yeah and you know we got to see in the film exactly how you know which i guess is now canonical yep so you know we get to see exactly how she rose to power and what prompted her to although i'm gonna say this i don't need a backstory on every single disney no, villain no i really don't sometimes i just like to think that this person is evil for the sake of being evil see a lot of people are, are you know the same way when it comes to scar they're like oh well, what was his name before scar and i don't remember the exact word but it's the swahili word for garbage like his name was literally garbage before he became well, I mean, and he's kind of another one too like i don't exactly remember the backstory that was given to well it's hamlet him it's hamlet is it it's it's essentially hamlet with lions uh but but yeah so he's like another one of those tragic it's villains it, where just watch you know the first thor movie oh here's the 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 physical perfection embodiment of the norse ideal and then Here's Loki. Like, Loki was the best anyways. Yeah, but I mean, who's going to be, you know, the one that people are going to follow and, you know, you know, uh, want to be, want to be their king? You know, it's the same with Scar and, and, and uh, Mufasa. So my, my last one, um, I'm going to go, like, there were a few that I could have picked, like, say, Harvey Dent as Two-Face, Penguin, but I wanted to go with one because this is a... Uh, a, a thing that is near and dear to my heart because um, when animals do what animals do, they are looked at as evil. Like, you know, the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park running around eating people. They're not doing it because they're bad. They're doing it because that's their nature. That's what they do. And if you go into a shark's domain, what's going to happen? The shark's going to try and figure out what you're doing there. So if you're swimming around naked and you're drunk and you get eaten by a shark, that's your own goddamn fault. So my third choice is Bruce from Jaws. Now, this shark, you know, was obviously embellished and 
Rampagey. Uh, yes, very rampagey. Um, but you know they they made him seem like he had a grudge, and then if you read the subsequent sequels, the sharks literally did have grudges against the Brody family, which is not something that happens. But you know, from the sharks' point of view, the Brodies are evil. It's like the sharks just swimming around doing what sharks do, and then like they could, you know, the shark didn't go into the Brodies' living room and start chomping on people. That's not what happened. You know, that's not what ever happens when a shark attacks somebody. That it somebody put a, a put it great and I forget who it was. It was something I read on on the internet. It was like some meme or something. It's like, "Oh, the shark attacked this person." It's like if a bucket of fried chicken skateboarded through your living room, what would you do? Right? Like if something that is a food product you know, just happens to, like, walk into your house, like, you're going to eat it. If a rotisserie chicken walked into your house, you'd be like, there's my dinner. You know, it. you don't have to go out. You don't have to cook. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to hunt it. You don't have to buy it. Just strolled right in and, like, put itself on a plate and hopped in front of you. Wasn't there a whole thing that went viral where this lady, it was after mm-hmm. several of the, the shark attacks down at the Cape and other places around uh, the U.S. where she was in her car and she kind of went on this tirade that was hilarious but so true, saying things like, you know, when you, you in the ocean, you in the shark's house. That's the shark's house, you know. You don't come into my house unannounced. Like, you don't come into my house uninvited. Right. You go like, in, you, if you, you don't want to be attacked. You don't want to be attacked by a shark. Here's what you do. Don't go in the water. There you go. So, you know, Brilliant. these are not evil creatures. They're just doing well, what I mean, they if, do. If they had, like, hands, it would be different. Because right. they could be like, oh, what are you? Oh, you're clearly not a seal. I'm not going to eat you. It's it's all of their sensory is, you know, a, a lot of their sensory. Um, it's in their mouth, in their teeth. They can tell their tactile just by, sensation. Right, they is can their tell mouth. just by biting into you the fat percentage that you have, and if you're worth the energy eating. Right, and I've covered this a few times on this show and others that you know they don't want to we eat. We don't add enough nutritional value. You do not to have their diet. Yeah, you do not have. And not only that, we don't taste good because when they chomp into us, they initially taste. The stuff that we put on our skin, so lotions, body sprays, perfumes, oils, you know, stuff of that nature. And then when they get into the actual, like, meat and fat of us, they taste fast food. They taste, you know, uh, pizza. They taste pasta. All of this stuff that's If you've eaten a bunch of seafood, like, right before, like, you know. Which is why I don't go in the water when I'm at the Cape. Right. Well, Because I live off of seafood. Yeah. But, I mean, that's not why I don't go in the water. No, but we just sit on the beach. Like, we don't go into where the sharks are. I mean, I don't go swimming in the ocean anymore. Right. But, but anyways, like, the shark is not interested in attacking you. Yeah, it just doesn't know what you are, and it's it's curious. It's just animal instinct. It's just like, It's the same way a dog comes up to you and sniffs you. Right, right. They don't have a nose. They can't sniff you, so biting you. They do. They can smell blood and stuff, but they don't. They but, can't, it, but it's not in the same. It's not the same. Right. Right. It's it's their exploratory. Yeah. Everything that they do through exploratory means is through their mouth. So and unfortunately, they're bigger and stronger than we are. So when they take a little nibble, there goes your leg below the knee, and that just happens to 
to be what the result is. So I think that was a pretty good list. Uh, we gave you uh, seven, seven different characters. If you have other thoughts, please let us know. Yeah, what are some of your favorite tragic villains? So up next, we're, uh, we're going to take a quick break, and then we're going to get into our discussion of uh, one of our My precious. My uh, precious. Um, tragic villains that Ashes was just introduced to just a couple weeks ago. So stick around, and we'll be right back. Deadly Grounds Coffee knows how important your coffee is to you. Every batch is roasted to perfection with a unique special method that brings out the richest, deepest, smoothest flavor you'll ever find. We're coffee freaks too, and deadly serious about our brew. Just one sip and you'll know why we say, once you go deadly, you don't go back. It's truly coffee to die for. So when you're ready to get a little deadly, get online and order yours at getdeadly.com. It's coffee so good, it's scary. Hey everybody, we are the Derailers, Goobs, Ripkin, and Jenny Bean, and you can join us once every week for a brand new derailment. It includes sidetracking, randomness, we just can't stay on topic. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at the Derailers. And please subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and also on YouTube. Derailers! This is Emma. You're listening to Showdown Sunday. But we need a few good taters. What's taters, Brussels? What's taters, huh? Potatoes. Boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. And we are back. I hope you enjoyed that uh, little clip. That's one of my favorite clips, and it's been memed so many times. taters, precious? And we actually, uh, we get uh, tater tots from, uh, like, the frozen tater tots, like, in huge bags from well, Walmart. Yeah, they're, they're just, well, or, or just, wherever, like, they're called tater tots. Sweetie, I, I think people know no, what I'm not, tater tots are. No, I'm not are. done. I'm not done. So we get the big bag, and on the bag, it just says taters. No, it just, says tater tots. It says taters. It says taters right on the bag. Because I've made that joke before, and I made the joke about ten years ago. I was like, what's taters, precious? You're like... I don't get what that reference is. I don't understand. Okay, first of all, I don't sound like that. Second of all, you just did. No, and apparently, okay, so apparently I'm wrong. I literally paused the recording to go into the freezer to get the bag to show her that it says taters, and underneath it says boil them, mash them, stick them in a stew. It does not. (laughs) No, it says. That's a lie. It says seasoned potatoes. It, it, it says potatoes. <laughs> it's not quite with that emphasis. Emphasis on the syllable. <laughs> oh, God. It's a good show, folks. Uh, and I'm drinking whiskey. She's got wine that she's still working on, and I'm still working on my whiskey. That's You don't know how many wines I've had today? Uh, clearly not enough, or too few. I forget how it is with you, Robits. Yeah, it, 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 yeah. But anyways, that's one of my favorite scenes, and it leads to a, a huge conflict and, you know, kind of undoes a lot of stuff. But it's a nice scene because it's really the one scene where Sam and Gollum sort of get along and have, like, a friendly banter back and forth. Um, But 
I mean, I don't know if I would call it friendly, but it was it was the only time where Sam actually spoke to Gollum. No, because he he does like like a I don't want to say humanely almost. Well, he he speak, you know, he's like he's like, oh, lovely piece of fried fish, and he's like, you know, Gollum. That's where he talks about how he wants it raw and wriggling, and you know, Sam talks about the the fish that he likes, like the golden fried fish and. Uh, and lovely chips and all that, and and he kind of looks at him and goes, "You're hopeless," you know. And he kind of says it like in a nice way, as opposed to when he's like dragging him by his throat with the elfish rope and like yelling at him and pulling swords on him and punching him and shit. Like it's the only time he speaks to him with any softness in his voice, you know, and. And that's it's kind of in. Is the it midst. because they were bonding over food? They might have been, and it was kind of in the midst of the Smeagol personality taking over. Like he wasn't Gollum at that point; he was more Smeagol. Um, but so speaking of Smeagol and Gollum, uh, let's let's talk first before we get into the background. Let's talk a little bit about your first impressions when you first saw him, and. While we were waiting for the uh, first half of this to upload, the uh, the first part of the uh, recording, I showed Ashes a couple of clips from the 1980 Return of the King animated to show her how frog-like Gollum looked. So, yeah, so that's apparently a thing that happened. And he was huge. He was huge in that. They made him look massive. He was about as big as the Hobbitses. Well, he was bigger than the Hobbitses. It was just hard to tell because he was like fighting invisible Frodo. I almost said naked. He was fighting. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that the, would have been a movie. Those are words that are similar, but uh, <laughs> yeah. So when you first got to see Gollum, because you really don't see much of him in uh, the 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 first one, uh, Fellowship, but you get a lot of Gollum in uh, Two Towers. Right. He's kind of. Uh... Almost a main character in the second and third film. They have a lot of main characters. I was going to say, in this story. Yeah, but like, I mean, he's fucking very, everybody's a main character. He becomes really important at times throughout this time. I mean, granted, a lot of characters become important at times. Okay, uh, so he's a character that happens predominantly in the second and third films. I will. I will say, you know, before we get too far into it, his main contribution doesn't even uh like his the reason why he's so important in this story doesn't occur in this story it occurs in the hobbit so i mean and we'll get into that but go ahead so there's more of him like there's more like is it andy circus yeah really yeah. in the hobbit trilogy yeah of course it is who else would it be oh that's really rad yeah i'll have to watch that that him and and Martin Freeman going back and forth is fucking amazing. We will get into the the riddle game in a little bit. So go ahead. So I was completely blown away. First of all, I uh, I have to keep reminding myself that these films, especially Return of the King, is well, no, Fellowship is almost twenty years ago. They're well because they're, they were all filmed in like two thousand one, two thousand two, two thousand three. So they're all roughly. Uh, 20 years old. Yeah, they all came out, like, within, you know, each year 
but because just, they were all filmed I'm, back to back. I, sometimes I get blown away by how far we've come as far as like technology and CGI and stuff goes. But at the same time, like what they were capable of doing in these films, like how they were able to equip Andy Serkis with the motion capture and seeing some of the behind the scenes stuff of him, like crouching down and really getting into character and interacting with these other characters. It's just, how has Andy Serkis not gotten an Oscar? Like, why did he not get an Oscar for this these films? Like, especially in fucking Return of the King. I was going to say more in in Two Towers, where they have the, where he has the back and forth with the two different personalities. Well, I was going to say in Return of the King, because you get him as Smeagol as well. You get the backstory and, and Smeagol's descent into Gollum. Yeah, but that's sorta. kind of glossed over. That's like 10 minutes. Like. Yeah, but still. But then, I mean, you know, there's the rest of the film. Like Andy Serkis' yeah. is Gollum, the rest of the but film. But the big thing was he was, people were up in arms that he wasn't nominated simply for that scene in uh, Two Towers where he was arguing, when Smeagol and Gollum were arguing and they kept, it was brilliant camera work by Peter Jackson you know, switching to make it seem like it was two separate people and Andy Serkis going back and forth between the two. Because you got to remember, he was also doing all the facial expressions as well. And, you know, one of the things I was going to mention while you were talking about that, like this motion capture technology, like this is what gave us, um, you know, the this was the precursor to like the stuff that we have now. Like Mark Ruffalo is the Hulk um, you know, Iron Man's suit, Spider-Man's suit, Josh Brolin is Thanos, like all these amazing uh, performances that are, you know, obviously heavily dependent on CGI that, you know, use the motion capture and they use the, um, the uh, you know, the facial capture as well. So you get all the facial expressions of the character. Because this isn't the only thing that Andy Serkis did with uh, motion capture. He was also, he played two different characters in King Kong. Uh, he was the cook that was on the ship, and he also played Kong himself. And that's not even the only ape that he played, because he was also Caesar in the New Planet of the Apes trilogy. And he did all of that motion capture work in addition to doing the voice, which, you know, he's clearly like, the best there is at it. You know, kind of like Mel Blanc is the father of, uh, of voice acting. Um, I would consider Andy Serkis the, like, you know, I would put him on a pedestal above everyone else. Not that, you know, a guy like Toby Kebble isn't really, really good, but he's just, he's not, uh, he he's not Andy Serkis. So, what else you got? So, when seeing this character for the first time, I'm not going to include uh, his brief cameo in Fellowship because you don't really get to see him. He's just kind of glossed over. Uh, but you really get to see him, obviously, in The Two Towers, and you're introduced to this character. And he's so different from any of the other characters or any of the other species of character that is has had been introduced up to that point you know he doesn't look like a hobbit he's not an orc he's not he's not anything so 
you know, I was really intrigued by who exactly is this character? What is this character? How did this character become this specific way? And I think it's kind of brilliant that they have a scene in the two towers where he does the back and forth between, you know, the, the, the split personalities between Smeagol and Gollum. They have that scene before they give you the backstory mm -hmm. of this character. I mean, granted, it's brief, but still, you know, before they give you the backstory in the beginning of the two, uh, not two towers, uh, Return of the King. And I actually kind of like that because it, it was really intriguing just watching. I mean, A, knowing that it's all CGI, it's a person, you know, motion capture, but even more so, like, there were so many little nuances and little things that went into this character that I found really intriguing. Like, you know, the way he would squint when he was angry or like the different uh, facial expressions. And especially the, the facial expressions switching back and forth between Smeagol and Gollum. So we know that he is this way. He's hundreds and hundreds of years old, almost 600 years old. Uh, at the time, the, these films are... 589 at the time. Yeah. And it's not uncommon for a lot of these characters to be centuries old. But there's something really intriguing about him and how he survived this long. And... Yeah, because we find out that Strider, Aragon, is, is, uh, is like 87... Yeah, I mean, you find that out if you read the books or if you watch the extended. Well, like version. in the elves are immortal for the most. They're they're immortal, but they're not like like, they're, they're, like you can stab them and kill them, but like without injuries or any injuries or illness, they will just live forever. You know, Gandalf is thousands of years old, and you know we we hear at I forget when the hell it was. Um, oh, at the beginning of the Fellowship, talking about how the ring, uh, the uh, the um, the voiceover by Kate Blanchett as Galadriel talking about how the ring brought to Gollum unnaturally long life. You know, even Bilbo is like super old and, you know, we, you know, Gandalf sees him. He's like, wow, you haven't aged a day in, you know, 60 years. They haven't seen each other. And Bilbo is 111, but he's like, physically, he's like, what would you say? 50 60 yeah, maybe 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 early 60s like he's still spry you know like somebody that you would look at like a, a you know like a, a, a you know a guy that you don't look at like like morgan freeman morgan freeman doesn't look like he's in his 70s this is true you know so this guy but this guy's 111 and he looks 50 years younger so there was something about the presentation of Gollum that really got me. Uh, you know, obviously we know he's old and stuff, but when he transfers back to Smeagol, the differences between Gollum, like Smeagol looks younger, slightly. Yeah. Smeagol yeah. looks like just, just, you know, in the face, obviously not so much in the, in the torso or the rest of his body, but in his facial, his face gets softer. Yes. His eyes get bigger. He smiles. Um, he his his voice obviously changes. Uh, he just gets lighter. Yeah, and, and, and even like physically, like his complete, like 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 the 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 aura around him, because some of these characters have this aura. He's not like a heavy character anymore, right? So you know, seeing the 
transfer, the translation between the two, like him going from Spiegel to Gollum to Spiegel to Gollum, you know, they're obviously more towards the end. He's straight up strictly Gollum. But there are some times, you know, especially in the two towers, meeting the hobbitses, starting on this journey with them, showing them, you know, trying to gain their trust. You know, Smeagol's trying to gain their trust. Gollum wants Smeagol to gain their trust so Gollum can double-cross them and get the ring back. But Smeagol is, it's almost like Smeagol is an innocent bystander throughout this whole process. And Gollum bullies him into working for him. Right, and it's um, it's very much uh, like the the relationship between uh, Palpatine and Darth Vader, where you know Palpatine is the influence of the Ring, and you know Gollum is this you know the same way Anakin you know Gollum was just really susceptible to the power of the Ring. Because, like, the first time he saw it as Smeagol, he demanded it and flew into a rage and murdered someone. And, like, that's not the Hobbit way. And and he's not technically a Hobbit. He's a... He, well, he's called a Stoorish Hobbit. They're, they're bigger and stronger than most, uh, than, you know, most Hobbits. Uh, although, at the time of this uh, story taking place, all the Stoorish Hobbits are extinct. From what I understand, he is the only one left. But that also explains his absolute brute strength that he has at times, where he's able to take, you know, brutal punishment from Sam and like all these injuries. And it just how, even though he's emaciated, he's so strong. So, as you said, uh, Gollum, who was born Smeagol was once a member of the secluded branch of the early Storish hobbits. He spent his early years of his life with his extended family under a matriarch, uh, which was his grandmother. On his birthday, he and his cousin, Deagle, again, Middle Earth told by Dr. Seuss. They had a pet. It was a Deagle. (laughs) They went fishing in the Gladden Fields. Their deagle found the ring in the riverbed after being pulled into the water by a fish. Smeagol immediately fell under the ring's influence and demanded it as a birthday present. And that was in the year of the Second Age, 2463. Our story takes place in the year of the Second Age, 3019. So when Deagle refused to give him the ring... Smeagol then murdered him by strangling him. He later used the ring for thieving, spying, and antagonizing his friends and relatives who nicknamed him Gollum for the swallowing noise he made in his throat until his grandmother disowned him. He wandered in the wilderness for a few years until he finally retreated to a deep cavern in the Misty Mountains. So he was packing his bags for the Misty Mountains? Yes. And then obviously it was the ring's influence that drew him more into this Gollum personality and completely changed his appearance. You know, he becomes lifeless. Yeah, he's, he, like he says, you know, he forgot the sound of trees, the taste of grass, the, the taste of bread, and he just ate blind cave fish like that's all he like anything that wandered into the cave 
is what he would eat, including goblins. Like, he would eat anything. Bats, birds, goblins, bugs. Fish was his preferred uh, his preferred meal. But it got to the point where he was in the cave so long, he forgot the words for moon and sun, referring to them as white face and yellow face. Well, he, and he refers to himself in the third person a lot as well. Well, I think he's talking, it's the... the Split personality. Yeah, like, back and forth. they're talking back and forth. Like, he refers to himself as, pre- when he's Gollum, he refers to, or when he's Smeagol, he refers to Gollum as precious, because Gollum is the influence of the ring. You know, so the ring is my precious, which is also what Isildur said. He said it was precious to him. Um... And, you know, obviously they never met because Isildur was killed and the ring, uh, he lost the ring and it floated down the river where it laid for years until it washed down and um, was found by Deagle. And so according to the, the Wikipedia page, Gollum is the fourth ring bearer. Apparently they count Deagle who had it for all of like, 45 seconds as a ring bearer. And I guess if the ring, you know, exerts any influence on you, although it does say that the ring has a will of its own, so maybe it was working on the two of them pitting who would who would win, like kind of pitting Spiegel and Deagle against each other to find out, you know, who would be the stronger ring bearer. And clearly... Smeagol was the stronger ring bearer. Maybe not so much the stronger ring bearer, but who could be easily influenced. Right. Yeah. But I mean, also by the ring, like, like who who um has who is more easily manipulated. Yes. But I think also, you know, because you have to have a strong constitution in order to withstand what the ring does to you. You know what I mean? Like. Smeagol. Well, and maybe that's why, you know, him being a, a storish hobbit, he had the build to withstand the withering away that the yeah he still had holding, that the physical strength. holding of, of the ring does to you. Because, you know, we meet him, he's hunchbacked, he's very skinny, but still, like, super... Wiry. Yes. It has this super strength. In the sense that, you know, he's able to fend off a lot of predators. Because all he does is he he climbs and squirms and sneaks. And he's got to go to these places to because he can't fight. But he's got to avoid detection. You know, he his evolution to me is fascinating because he really becomes a product of his surroundings. Living in a dark area, his eyes get bigger. Mm-hmm. So he can see better in the dark. It's almost like he has night vision. Like at this the skin point. around his, his head like shrinks away to accentuate his eyes. Right. You know, he becomes almost albino, kind of translucent. Yeah, he, he goes in from color. Normal like they he I mean he was descri- always kind of weird looking. Well, he's described in the books as, you know, sometimes like dark, sometimes pale. Like, you know, a lot there's a scene where somebody sees him and they think he's a a tailless squirrel because of like how he's dressed. Although in the in the book, I mean uh, in the movie, we just see him with like a tattered loincloth, probably for you know ratings sake. But like in the book, he has pocketses, and in his pocketses, he has a uh, a grindstone that he uses to sharpen sharpen his teeth. He also has orc teeth, 
or goblin teeth. I forget which. I think goblin teeth. Um, some wet shells and a piece of a bat wing. I don't know why he just keeps that with him. Maybe like that's you know it, it's significant to him for some reason. But uh, one thing that's strange with Tolkien is we don't find out the backstory on every single one of those things. Oh, he can tell you that so and so was the father of this person, the father of that person, and then that tell you their whole there's lineage. A, there's a backstory, but he can't tell you everything. the backstory for the certain things. In, in Gollum's pocket. Was he like on an episode of Chopped, and that's what he walked away with? Maybe those were his ingredients. <laughs> And he had to file his teeth down okay, in order so, to eat the uh, final product. You've got you've got wet sh- wet shells, wet shells, bat wings, bat wings and, and goblin teeth, <laughs> and, and a, yeah, and a goblin. And you have forty five minutes. Go. And he had to sharpen his teeth in order to eat it because he was also missing a lot of teeth too. But we saw him like sink but his teeth directly into with age. You know. Yeah, but he still had some strong teeth because he was the able aging to process, and he was. He was not only strong, he was fast because he catches fish barehanded. And like, so. That's not easy. The fish that Andy Circus was eating, they were actually like fish gummies, like large gummy fish. Yeah. Made, obviously made specifically for this. So they looked lifelike. So he could just sit there and tear into them. And that happens a lot when people have to eat, so like in the. Uh, well, like in Game of Thrones, the heart yeah, that Daenerys had to eat say, it was a gummy heart. It was a gummy heart, but like it, and they like filled it with like goop. Yeah, that yeah. got all over her, and then she had mm-hmm. to go to the bathroom, and she got stuck to the toilet. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Well, that's what I was gonna say. Like you know, this is a that's a common thing. Like if somebody has to eat something that's gross, it's usually gummy. Yeah, and it's not delicious gummy either because, you know, it's it's made it's to look in the fashion of what it's supposed to, you know, full of dye and all of this other stuff. It's it's edible-ish. The way fondant is edible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fondant is gross. But but anyways, yeah, so I, I just think that the, the physical evolution of this character and seeing the... The the this the stranglehold that this ring has on him, and how he is stopping at nothing to not only find the ring, because obviously he lost it. Now, how did he lose it? So, in the Hobbit, um, there is a scene where, um, if I remember, because I haven't read the book in many many years, and I haven't seen the movies in a few years, but if I remember correctly, they're escaping from some goblins you know, the the whole party, and Bilbo gets lost and, like, ends up wandering this cave and wanders into Gollum's cave, but he finds a ring. Because remember, the ring has a will of its own. Um, because it's, you know, imbued with all of Saruman's hate and malice. So the ring has a will of its own, and it forces itself away from Gollum. Maybe it made Gollum forget about it, or made him put it down, or you know, it was able to somehow get out of its possession. And Bilbo finds it. That's not what he wanted. That's not what the ring wanted. But Bilbo finds it and puts it in his pocket. And Gollum finds Bilbo. And I remember the first time I read this, I'm thinking that this thing is huge because he threatens to eat Bilbo unless he can best him in a riddle contest. And you know, we talked last week about how many times we've seen, uh, you know, uh, 
writers and and creators take story beats from uh, the Lord of the Rings. If you've read the Dark Tower series, you will know that there is a riddle contest in book three into book four, uh, The Wastelands and Song of Susanna. I'm sorry, Wizard and Glass. Wizard and Glass. Uh, I get confused because of Susan Delgado. But there's a riddle contest that is clearly taken directly from this exchange because there are a couple of uh, similar riddles. So the first riddle um, is what has roots as nobody sees is taller than trees. Up, up, up it goes and yet never grows. And that was Gollum's first riddle. And Bilbo answers a mountain. So he gets it right. So now it's Bilbo's turn, and he says, 30 white horses on a red hill. First they champ, then they stamp, then they stand still. The answer is T. Some of these are not fair riddles at all. Okay? So this one's not bad. Voiceless it cries, wingless flutters, toothless bites, mouthless mutters. And Bilbo answers correctly, the wind. So remember, this is Gollum saying this. So it goes to show that he has retained knowledge in his long, long, long life. Because at this point, he's about 400 and, I'm sorry, 530, give or take. Because he, when he loses the ring, he looks for Bilbo for about 50 years before being captured by Mordor. Um, so the next one, and this one I would never have gotten in a million years, I would have gotten either. An eye in a blue face saw an eye in a green face. That eye is like to this eye, said the first eye, but in low place, not in high place. And the answer is sun on the daisies. The sun shining on daisies. Never would have gotten that in a... What the hell? If you gave me a trillion tries, I wouldn't have gotten that one. Um, it cannot be seen, it cannot be felt, cannot be heard, cannot be smelt. Lies behind sty stars and under hills, and empty holes it fills. It comes first and follows after, ends life, kills laughter. The answer is darkness. Very appropriate, considering where they are. A box without hinges, key, or lid, yet golden treasure inside is hid. And Smeagol correctly answers, an egg. If you're noticing a pattern here, it's that Gollum's riddles are much more complicated and worded very differently than Bilbo's. So there's only a few more. Alive without breath, as cold as death, never thirsty, ever drinking, all in mail, never clinking. And this is one of Gollum's favorite things, fish. This one is also cheating, I think. No legs lay on one leg, two legs sat near on three legs, four legs got some. The answer is fish on a little one-legged table, man at a table sitting on a three-legged stool, and the cat gets the bones. Yeah. What? Right? How, how is that even? How, it, it, that's not even a riddle. That's, that's some bullshit is what that is. So there's two more. Uh, this thing all things devours. Birds, beasts, trees, and flowers. Gnaws iron, bites steel, grinds hard stones to meal. Slays king, ruins town, and beats 
high mountain down. And at this point, Gollum is very, very insistent because he's, he's like, all right, I got him this time. And Bilbo says, you know, uh, you know, you can't eat me yet. You need to give me a little more time. <gasps> time. That's the answer. And then Gollum gets pissed. And then it's Bilbo's turn. And he says, what have I got in my pocket? And that's when Gollum starts to get a little suspicious and gets kind of pissed. He's like, no, no, no. That's not a riddle. And he's like, no, no. What have I got in my pocket? What's in my pocket? And so Gollum gets three guesses. The first is Hans's. And Bilbo shows that he doesn't have anything in his in his in his hand in his pockets. His hands are not in his pockets. The next is nothing. And that's not right. And he tries he's like running through things in his head. And all of a sudden, the Smeagol personality leaves. And the Gollum personality takes over and says, What has it got in its pockets? And he starts feeling around and realizes he doesn't have his ring. He doesn't have his precious. It's gone. What does Bilbo have in his pockets? And there's an awesome scene I don't want to ruin because it's fucking amazing. But it is alluded to in the first movie where they're going through the mines of Moria and they realize that Gollum is following the fellowship and Frodo brings us up to Gandalf. Gandalf's like, yeah, it's, it's Gollum. He's, you know, following the ring. And he's like, oh, yeah, yo, you know, Bilbo told me about him. You know, it's a pity he didn't kill him. And Gandalf goes, pity? It was pity that stayed Bilbo's hand. You know, just because, you know, he's this weird, twisted, tragic creature doesn't mean he deserves death. And as a result, because Bilbo has the chance, because he has Sting at this point, he has the chance to kill Gollum. But he turns invisible by putting the ring on. He didn't know that that's what it did. But he turns invisible, and he follows Gollum, who leads him out of the cave, which he was never going to do in the first place. Like, that's what the whole riddle contest was. If Bilbo won, Gollum would lead him out. If Gollum won, he could eat Bilbo. And Bilbo follows Gollum out of the cave, figures out now he how he can get out, and pulls the sword out and gets ready to strike, but he sees the absolute depths of sadness and depression and anxiety on Gollum's face. Because we're not talking, I mean, Smeagol's face. Because this isn't Gollum right now. This is Smeagol's. Smeagol's side has taken over. And because of that, he looks so pitiful and sad that Bilbo's like, I can't do this. Even with the influence of the ring, he is able to bypass the urge to kill him. And he kind of just like shoves him aside and runs away. And Gollum is screaming, you know, Baggins, Baggins, we hates it forever. And uh, he can't follow him because there are too many goblins. And he'll be caught. So he does eventually start stalking Bilbo 
but his trail goes cold. He can't track him anymore. I mean, it's been years at this point. And as he's roaming the country, you know, he finds the secret staircase to, uh, oh, what's the name of that place? What did my notebook go? The uh, Sirith Ungol, which is that, I don't even call it really a staircase. It's more of a, a ladder when you think of how vertical it is. So he finds the uh, the stairway to Sirith Ungol, which goes through Shelob's cave. And he's somehow able, and I think this is probably due to the influence of the ring and Sauron and how close they are to Mount Doom at this point, that he is able to somehow form an alliance with Shelob where he brings, you know, victims to Shelob, but Shelob lets him pass. I don't know why. I don't know how. Uh, it's never really explained. Um, another thing that's never explained, and this is one that has always kind of, it's been a big plot hole to me. But that kind of makes sense, though, because that's exactly what she, uh, what Gollum does with Frodo and Sam. Yeah, but Frodo and Sam are higher thinking creatures. Shelob is a spider. Right, but still, like. Driven only by instinct. Gollum brings Frodo to Shelob. Right, right. That's what I'm saying. Like he's he brings because like, he has. I thought you meant like he made a uh, a pact with them. No, no. Well, I mean, like. Well, yeah, because think his, that they did. His but plan is: I'll bring you up there. She'll eat you. I spit can out all your bones, and I'll just take the ring when she's right. done. Because she doesn't want it. What's she gonna do with it? And we have an understanding. But there's a uh, there's a, a scene. Obviously, it's the one of the most famous scenes, the you shall not pass scene where Gandalf battles the, uh, the Balrog on the bridge of Khazad-dûm and the bridge is destroyed. So the question that's always been on my, and on my end is how does Gollum get across that massive cavern? My guess is, you know, because as we see them, you know, when they're going through that weird, crazy staircase uh, that gets destroyed, and I don't know how Gollum would have followed him through there. There's all kinds of uh, goblin tunnels that he's able to navigate without um, without being seen, you know, because he is hundreds of years old. He probably knows all these places inside and out. But Gollum is a tragic character because no one likes him. Like, everybody sees him and instantly hates him because of the way he looks like they call him well, uh, the way he acts, slinker too. and stinker and sneak and. Frodo's the only one who kind of gives him the time of day, but that's kind of only because Frodo ha- like wants something from him. You know, you know the way to Mordor. Take me to Mordor so I can destroy this ring. Well, I don't think that's the only reason, because there is. Uh, so in the book, after he is tortured in Mordor. Um, Gandalf finds him and brings him to the elves and the elves take care of him and heal him but he escapes during an orc attack like he doesn't he doesn't want to be kept anywhere and you know continues and he ends up finding the the fellowship I might have I might have that backwards like maybe he is after he escaped the elves that's when he gets caught by Mordor and tortured Uh, but one way or the other like um those things happened. So Gandalf was kind to him. Bilbo 
the only kindness he showed him, like, it still counts, but he didn't murder him when he had the chance, which, you know, leads to what happens at the end. But you and I discussed a little bit last week, and we discussed off air, Frodo's real motivation for, despite everything, you know, that Sam says to him, despite all of his warnings, all of the stuff that he sees, even, you know, up until the point where, you know, Gollum tries to kill him, he keeps this creature with him all the time. It's not just to get, you know, to Mordor to destroy the ring, because that's obviously what Frodo wants to do, even though he kind of has his doubts that that's what Gollum wants. Well, it's because Frodo sees himself in Gollum. Frodo feels the effect of the ring, you know, the, the effect that this ring is having on him, can feel his descent into madness and him trying to stay sane. And you can kind of see, especially towards the end of the third film, him starting to develop the two personalities, like Smeagol and Gollum. Well, we saw it in the Battle of Osgiliath with... Um... Faramir, when the ring wraith almost got him, and Sam kind of tackled him out of the way, and when they land on the ground, he pulls out Sting and holds it to Sam's throat, and Sam's like, don't you recognize your Sam? Remember we talked about Mr. that? Mr. Frodo. Mr. Frodo. Potatoes. <laughs> oh, Sam's the best. Um, but like yeah, he, so, yeah he's... so having the trio with Frodo in the middle... Sam is representative of Frodo's past, the Shire, his hobbits friends, you know, drinking ale in in the the bars and stuff. You know, that that's his past. Strawberries and that's who, with cream. You know, and that's who Frodo is. Frodo's the present. You know, um yeah. Gollum represents his future. His if he continues on with this ring. That is what's going to happen to Frodo. Yeah, that's his fate. And I don't and think so Frodo's going to last that long. Feels, I think he feels um, empathetic towards, maybe even sympathetic, because he's feeling mm-hmm. it. So he knows he knows why Gollum, Smeagol, you know, he knows why they are the way that they are. Because he's feeling the transformation within himself. And so he can be that way. He can sympathize with them because, you know, he knows that... It's not so much their fault as the corruption of the ring, which Frodo is starting to feel. And he kind of feels from the beginning. And it's Sam who is able to keep one foot of Frodo's in reality. Well, it's also like Gollum plays on that, like, Oh, he doesn't know what it's like. He doesn't understand what you're going through. I know. Like, look at me. I understand. I get it. He can't possibly understand. Well, and not only that, he's he's Smeagol a lot with Frodo as well. And Gollum towards Sam. So Sam sees the dirty, conniving, filthy Gollum where Slinker. Frodo sees Smeagol, the lighter, innocent almost puppy dog eyed 
Well, he creature. follows him around calling him master. Yeah, so a puppy you know, is definitely the, the like, right way to look you at know, it. He presents himself differently to both characters. So he's trying to turn Frodo against Sam because that will continue. You know, Sam is trying to keep Frodo in the here and now. He's trying to keep Frodo present. He's trying to keep Frodo good. You know, whereas Gollum wants him to continue down this path of corruption because he can eventually kill him. You know, take advantage of him mm-hmm. and kill him and take the Wait ring. Wait till he's asleep, kill him, kill him, take the ring, and then because he almost does, he almost takes you know, it. A couple and of there times. are plenty of times where Frodo kind of questions his reality. What's you know? Who am I? What am I doing? Is this real? Trying not to give in to the dark side, trying not to be corrupted by the ring, but ultimately doing so. Yeah, and he feels it weighing on him. Like he he even says, like in the two towers, like it's getting heavier. Like I can feel it. Like it's you know it wants to go back to him, and then he just like physically like he's. It's not just a journey, and it's not just like the. I mean, a lot of it is because you see Sam looking almost as ragged physically 13 month journey with no shower but it's the mental it's the mental side of it that you know really breaks frodo and we see that at the edge of uh at the edge of the uh, uh the volcanic entrance there when he has the chance and his strength fails him the same way isildur's strength failed him i am of the opinion that had Frodo been able to, and this is a plot point that everybody always brings up, why didn't they just take the eagles in the fucking first place, fly over there, zip over the volcano, drop it in as they flew over? Like, he would have been able to do that. Like, I think the longer the journey took, the more the ring took hold of him, because I think the It's not hobbits, the journey, it's the friends we made along the way. Yeah, the real Smeagol is the friends we made <laughs> along the way. The, um... The strength that hobbits have to resist the ring's power is much greater than that of men. And we see that with Boromir, Faramir, Denethor. Uh, The only one who can do it without an issue is Aragorn. But even he has, like, mystical properties to it. Well, because his lady friend is an elf. Well, no, he was also raised by the elves. That's how he met her. And that's why he's 87 but looks, you know, Like a smoldering... 35. No, he looks late 40s. He does not look late 40s. First of all, he was late 40s at the time. Hold on, I'm going to have to look this up. Okay. But he looks but late 40s. He's got gray hair. He is an older gentleman at that point. He doesn't have gray hair. In return of the, Yes, he absolutely does. He absolutely has gray Viggo hair. Morton, no. Yup. Yup, 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 yup. Nope, nope, no, no, no. So I'm gonna I'm gonna pull up pictures so you can see how old he was in that. Okay, uh, he looks he looks like late thirties, early forties. I'll give him that. Sean Bean looks late thirties. Viggo Mortenstein looks much older because he's got gray. He's got yeah, he's got gray in his beard in this picture. When he it's hard to see because he's got a sword in front of his face. Which is maybe is it's not gray; radio. it's just the reflection, the reflection of the sword. Of, yeah, because we all know how well hair reflects. Uh, it happens. Shut up. But uh, no, look at that. That's an old man right there. That is no, an old man. Not an old man. 
All right. He's an old man, and that's just he's the way it not. is. not. You're an old man. I never said I wasn't. I have gray in my beard. He looks fine. It's fine. Yeah. He's so fine. It's fine. He, uh, he has an unnaturally long life, but and he has the ability to resist the ring, like I was saying before you derailed it with your talk about how old Vigo Mortenstein was. Uh, but no, he has the ability to get rid of it. And we see that with Isildur, who had it for all of f- five fucking minutes before it took a hold of him. But he was also the prince. He was the son of the king. He had aspirations of power and expectations of of power. So the ring was able to use that to corrupt him. Frodo never wanted power, never wanted, you know, glory or anything like that. He was just like, it took after uh, over a year of traveling with this thing, constantly touching his skin. He was just like, it got me like. He was, I think he, he broke right before they entered when Sam picked him up and carried him. I think that was his breaking point. He couldn't go any further. He couldn't do it. But that also explains why Frodo was able to return to Frodo, being Frodo, yes. after the destruction of the ring. Whereas, you know, Gollum, Smeagol, whoever... They weren't able to do that after losing the ring. I mean, granted, there's a difference between, you know, destruction and, and loss. Well, there's also a difference between still... Frodo had it for a little over a year. Smeagol had it for almost 600 years. But still, um, Frodo was able to go back to being Frodo. I think... I don't think uh, Smeagol would have been able to go back to being Smeagol even after, like, had he destroyed it. the ring had such a hold on on Gollum that he would not have returned to... Yeah, Smeagol had it for a total of zero... He didn't even have it. Like, he hadn't even touched it yet, and it made him kill. Right. So, yeah, he was definitely... He had a strong constitution but he was weak mentally in order to, uh, you know, I think that's why they got the, why he had to create the Gollum personality because otherwise he would have just been insane and would have wandered and died some died in a cave and the ring never would have uh, found its next bearer. Like he would have just wandered off somewhere, gotten eaten by a, you know, a warg or a, a giant spider or something, but he, uh, if he hadn't developed the Gollum personality. That's my my thought on it. No, I, I agree with you. I think it was ultimately a defense mechanism, but, you know, it's... Uh, which is, honestly, one of the reasons why people develop multiple personalities. Yeah, dissociative it's identity a, disorder right. is a coping mechanism for trauma. It exactly. wasn't me. It was Jerry that, that got hurt. Exactly. So, I mean, that, that makes sense. But, I mean, ultimately, this character meets his untimely death because of the ring. Well, I wouldn't call it untimely. Well, I mean, like, it was... Uh, <laughs> he meets I mean, like, death. how long was he supposed to live? We like, don't know. Hobbits, you know, hobbits, uh, from what I understand, have similar lifespans to... Maybe... People. 600 years was a short time for him. My question is, had Frodo destroyed the ring, how long would, uh, you know, would... Gollum Smeagol have continued to live because we look at how how much Bilbo ages from 
the middle of fellowship when they meet in Rivendell to the end of Return of the King. And I think that was like five years because, uh, you know, they were back in the Shire for a few years. So I think like five years he aged, like he looked 111 at that point. Mm-hmm. You know, he aged 50 years in five years. But even because then, he no longer had that. it really wasn't Frodo who destroyed the ring. It was Gollum who destroyed the ring. And even in his death, was trying to protect it. Yes. Because that was a fairly accurate uh, depiction of what would happen if you landed in lava. Because you don't just, like, sink because it's rock. You would land mm-hmm. on the surface and kind of writhe around a little bit and burn up. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was fairly accurate. Uh, he sunk in a little bit, but he also dropped, like, 100 feet. But he was so excited to get his precious back. After he, biting Frodo's finger off. Which you didn't get the first time they... Sh- no, because well, because Frodo's invisible at the time. Yeah, it's hard so to see. So you don't actually see the biting of the finger. Like, well, you see him chomp down, but it almost looks like he's just biting the ring off of... Like, removing the ring with his mouth. Right. And even in... Uh, we referenced the 1980 thing earlier today. We watched the clip of... Those are the people who did all of, like, the animated Christmas stuff. Rankin-Bass, yeah. Yes. Yeah, they did the, um, like... The uh, the mouse Christmas Eve. Night before Christmas, that's what it's called. Well, I was also going to say... Frosty? Frosty, Rudolph. uh, Yeah, but, like, there's the night before Christmas with the mice. Yeah, well, they did a lot of stuff. Uh, So, we watched that original clip, and you also wouldn't know that... Well, Gollum bit it again, off, except for the fucking song they were singing, Frodo of the Nine Fingers. And why yeah. does he have nine fingers? Because Gollum bit it off. Like, those are the actual lyrics that they sing. They worked really hard on those lyrics. Yes. But, but yeah, but again, like, in the animated version, Frodo is invisible because he's wearing the ring. So it really just looks like, you know, aside from you know, the Frodo in the animated see film, whatever, had a little bit more of a reaction to it than Frodo in the film. It was kind of both, because they were both writhing on the ground, screaming, holding their bloody hands, although in the cartoon it wasn't bloody. Um, but yeah, so anyways, it, it looks like he's just removing the finger with his mouth. because Removing Frodo, the ring. Removing... You said removing the, the ring. That's what he does. Removing <laughs> the ring from the finger with his mouth because his hands are occupied because he's fighting an invisible person. Yes. It's, because it's, that's real life. But again, it's because, you know, there's there's ratings things, even though we saw a lot of decapitations and, and brutal stabbings, it was still in like that if they were all bad guys. They were never like good guys. Um but he you know ends I mean? up with the ring, but it's his celebration of gaining the ring back that causes him to fall into Mount Doom. Yeah, the the struggle he knocks them his both. Balance. Yeah, right. knocks them both into the. Uh, they both go over the side, and Sam's able to to rescue Frodo, even though Frodo contemplates briefly just letting go after everything he did. Mm-hmm. Sam's like, "Nuh-uh." 
Don't even think about it. Don't make me get out my frying pan, okay? Don't make me come down there. <laughs> um, but yeah, like this this character is one of the more complex because like he's a villain, but he's ugh. like he's a bad guy, but. I mean, the they even time. specifically spell that out. Sam even says, oh, you don't see it. He's a villain. And Sam's like, I have to. I mean, Frodo says, I have to hope. I have to believe that he can come back from this. I I have to believe because that's my fate as well. So do you have any uh, any final thoughts on Gollum before we go? I know you have some fun facts there. Yeah. So I have some fun facts. So Andy Serkis actually uses his Gollum voice on his children, either just for fun or when they're misbehaving, to scold them. So that must be really fun at his house. He also based Gollum's desperation and cravings on the withdrawal symptoms of heroin addicts. Now, Andy Serkis was only supposed to voice Gollum. He wasn't supposed to do any physical acting or portrayals at all but peter jackson was so like impressed with what he was seeing in the the voice booth that he immediately knew that andy circus had to physically portray Gollum as well and andy circus in order to get smeagol Gollum's signature voice drank a bunch of bottles of what he called Gollum juice, which was a mixture of honey and lemon and ginger to keep his throat lubricated for his intense vocal performances. Yeah, and a lot of folks will drink different things. Yeah, um, like, it, it's almost like a... You find a lot of that in Trade tea. secret. Yeah, yeah, so... Um, but anyways... Yeah, so I still baffled by the fact that how did Andy Serkis not get an Oscar nomination for Best Supporting Actor for his role of Gollum, Smeagol? Like I was still baffled by that. He should have he should have won the uh the, the he should have won an Oscar in I mean, and I've seen his, you know, motion capture voice acting in the Planet of the Apes films and in King Kong. You know, I've seen his physical acting in 13 going on 30. But like, I, I, so I know that he's a really good actor, but there's something about his portrayal of, of Smeagol Gollum that is just above and beyond anything else. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, it's kind of in the same category of, man, I wish Robin Williams had gotten a nomination for Aladdin. Right. It's like, why don't they, I understand that, that they want to, you know, reward physical acting. Like, oh, he wasn't physically there. It's like, yeah, then, but then he kind of fucking was. voice acting. Like, voice, voice acting act, is a thing. And voice I, acting, motion capture. Yeah, like, be make, a, that, a make that a thing. Same Do way that, that stunt, stunt acting should be a fucking category, because that shit's crazy. But yeah, so I found this character, uh, which is why I wanted to discuss this character, just very intriguing. You know, he definitely wasn't my favorite character of of all the three films. We talked about him last week. A little bit, because um, you have to. Well, no, I was say Sam. We talked about Sam. Sam was my favorite character. We talked about oh. Sam last week. But this character, there's something about just everything. And I don't think I could see anybody else playing this character. 
And obviously, the the book and the films wouldn't have been the same without the addition of this character. I agree. I agree. Like, this is a, a great character. One of the top characters. He didn't make my top uh, my top five, but uh, which you'll find out next week, and we'll talk about that a little more after the break. But uh, yeah, hope you enjoyed that, and uh, we'll be right back. Shark Bites, Shark Bites Podcast. It's the greatest show in history. From the Dorkning Network, hosted by a nerd who's named Patsy. From movie reviews to tips on surviving the coronavirus, Shark Bites has it all. Follow us on Facebook and suggest topics at sharkbitespod at gmail.com. Available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Hey there. This is JB, and if you enjoy Tales from the Crypt, then check out my show, Tales from the Podcast, where myself, and usually a very special guest, sit down to discuss the TV show, the films, the animated series, as well as the original comics. So check me out every other week on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, and of course, at TalesFromThePodcast.com. Thanks for listening, kiddies. You're all a scream. <laughs> Sneaky little hobbitsies. Wicked, twitsy, false. You don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. Not listening. Not listening. You're a We are back. I hope you liked some of those random uh, Gollum quotes because those are always fun. Uh, Andy Serkis is just a fucking treasure. He's so good. My precious. Yeah, that was not as good. What's Teeter's precious? Uh, so we have uh, we have battle results for you this we week. We do have battle results. So Unsurprising battle results. Well, I okay. I'm just. We'll just say. So last week we threw down the Sam I Am battle, wanting to know which Sam you thought was more important to the outcome of its respective story. So you could choose between Samwise Gamgee from Lord of the Rings or Samwell Tarly from Game of Thrones. Now you could ar- make an argument for for both of them. You know, Samwell Tarly, he is. He's instrumental in getting the dragon glass. Well, there's that. He knows all about Jon Snow's origins. Again, I don't. I'm gonna. I'm gonna say this because I've said this to you off air, and I've said this to a couple people off air. Um, I considered the TV show after season. Well, I consider the TV show the most expensive fan fiction ever created because of what happened by the end of that. Uh, so I, as far as I'm concerned, Sam's story is still. Yet to be determined. So there could but be, I do believe he is the narrator. Yeah, I do believe that he is the author and narrator of the show. I believe that he is currently writing a Song, Song of, of Ice, Ice and, and Fire. Fire. Yeah. You know, and him being a the maester mm-hmm. plays an important role in the outcome of that story. Yes. 
Um, or Samwise Gamgee, obviously, he's the whole reason why Frodo was victorious. And even then, it, it wasn't, you can argue that it wasn't really Frodo who... Sam's the hero of the story. Yes. Like, that's just, that's just how it is. Frodo would not Fight have me. made it to Mount Doom. The ring would not have been destroyed without the sheer will and and ferocity of Sam. Which is why I gave him a Green Lantern ring in my uh, my recent article. Which is a really good article, by the way. Which you can find on oldmanwade.com. I took every Lantern core and assigned five random characters. They could be real life, DC, Marvel, literary. It doesn't matter. I assigned... Uh, Five character, five, five individuals to each of the different uh, lantern cores. You know, so there's red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, black, and white. So there's forty five total characters. It took me about a week to make my decisions and then give the reasoning why. And uh, give it a look. I think uh, I've gotten a, a lot of good feedback about it. People really like some of the choices I've made. So uh, check it out. Tell me what you think. Uh, but back to uh, so for the first Sam. time in Throwdown Thursday history, we have a shutout. Yeah, which I was both on Facebook and the poll on Twitter. Yeah, one hundred percent of the vote unanimous. Samwise Gamgee. Samwise the Brave. Yes. Yeah. Sam, not Sam the Slayer. Sam the Brave, um, and even you know, one of the biggest Tolkien nerds out there. Stephen Colbert, he even said Sam is the hero of the story. And that is not why Sam is my favorite character. I'm just throwing it out there because I love Stephen Colbert. Yeah, but he is, he, Sam is the hero of the story. I love Stephen Colbert. Um, but yeah, there would have been no happy ending without Sam. Correct. So we have, uh, we also have some science and some some wine. So I'm going to go, uh, I'll, I'll do my, my science first because I have some, uh, Tolkien related science. So this is from an article on The Atlantic from uh June I'm sorry, May third of twenty fifteen. I was gonna say July, but the the uh author's name is Julie Beck, so it kind of threw me off. It's called uh from an article entitled Science's Love Affair with the Lord of the Rings. And, you know, a lot of you know, it's the it starts off talking about how, you know, a lot of nerds are into science and a lot of nerds are into Lord of the Rings. And if there was a Venn diagram, you know, a lot of those people would meet in the middle. But uh, one of the things that's, that's fun. uh, There's a quote that comes out of this. It says, uh, Tolkien has been accorded formal taxonomic commemoration like no other author. Uh, There is um, to give you a few, several newly discovered animal species have been named after characters in the books. Uh, A genus of wasps in New Zealand is now called, Shire Plitis, you know, named after the Shire, with species S. Bilboi, Shire, S standing for Shire Plitis, S. Frodoi, S. Mariotici, and S. Peregrini, S. Samwisei, and S. Tolkien. So everybody, you know, Sam, the, the four main hobbits and Tolkien, the wasps bear the name of the hobbits because they are, quote, Small, short, and stout, according to a press release. On the other side of the size spectrum, paleontologists named a 900-pound ancient crocodile Anthracosuchus balrogus. There's also a dinosaur named after uh, Sauron. 
So um, I think it's pretty awesome. Uh, there were also asteroids named Tolkien in Bilbo, a crater on Mercury named Tolkien. Uh, there is a spectrograph used to study certain kind of galaxies called the spectral spectrographic aerial unit for research on optical nebulae or Sauron. That's pretty cool. <laughs> there's uh, there's some awesome stuff. Like there's a uh, the Palantir, the uh, little like crystal ball thing that uh, Mary finds mm -hmm. in the third one. Um, there is a it's a name of a software company that's been linked to the U.S. Uh, CIA and National Security Agency. Um, yeah, like it's it's awesome. Like there's a lot of fun stuff on here. So. There is a sea slug uh gastropod named smeagol nice yeah nice so yeah there's there's a, a ton of stuff um but yeah i just wanted to throw out some of those because i think that's uh super oh and i will i will i will throw this out there because uh something that we talked about um in here that uh Aragorn gives his age to be 87. He displays the physical prowess of a man assumed to be in their mid-30s. I was right! So I'll give you that. Boom! Um, yeah, so his age will be approximately to be 35 for the purposes of calculating. That's what you get for the taters at the beginning. Partial, partial pressure of oxygen. So, um... Let's see, like some of these, what kind of mental illness does Gollum have? Is Bilbo able to escape Gollum and the Hobbit because Gollum living in a dark cave is vitamin D deficient and therefore weaker? Could Frodo really have survived being stabbed by a cave troll, uh, even if he was wearing impenetrable mithril? Uh, yeah, schizoid personality disorder, which is what we said for, uh, uh, what's his name? Uh, Smeagol Gollum. So I just thought that'd be a fun little thing to talk about. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoyed that. So uh, Ashes, what have you got for your wine? So I have a lot of wine. I have been drinking a lot of wine in quarantine. And I have some that I want to talk about. So not only have I been drinking wine by the box, I have been drinking wine by the bottle. I've been drinking wine by the carton. I've been drinking wine by... The flagon. <laughs> you can drink it by the horn you can drink it by the flagon so i recently stopped at the local liquor store uh i wanted something an essential sparkly. business yes a very very essential business for my sanity at this point um i was craving something sparkling and i just kind of wanted to peruse around and see i love the efficiency of wine in a box it's in a box it's a wine in a box <laughs> exactly it's got a nice little spout it's easy to pour you have a lot of it but you're committed to that one type that one brand that one flavor so sometimes you want to mix it up a little bit so I often, when I have a box of wine, will have some bottles of wine on hand as well for when I'm not feeling, you know, the Franzia Merlot or, you know, the black box Cabernet or whatever I happen to be drinking at the time. So I found something really interesting at the local liquor store. Carlo Rossi is a brand of wine that you may be 
familiar with because they are typically the wine that comes in the jugs, the glass jugs, the nice big glass jugs of wine. Many different varietals, many different flavors, ultimately relatively cheap. So I found the display of Carlo Rossi wines, and I've had their wines before, and they're pretty good, especially for the price point. And I found three new flavors. Now, I only tried two, but I promise you I'm going back to the liquor store as soon as possible and getting this third flavor to try for you. It was a pineapple sangria, a raspberry sangria, and a watermelon sangria. Now, I didn't grab the watermelon because I'm not the biggest fan of artificially flavored watermelon stuffs. But after trying the first two sangrias, I'm definitely interested in trying the watermelon. So I will get back to you on that. But anyways, so the pineapple sangria is a white wine. It is super citrusy and fruity and bright on the palate. Definitely hits you right off the bat with a really just um, fruit-forward pineapple flavor. And then you get a little bit more of like a like a lemony, citrusy, even like a little bit of a hint of vanilla on the back of the palate, which kind of breaks up just some of the, the citrus notes. It's really nice. Obviously served chilled, but it is it it's so good. Patrick, you had it. I loved it. Um I wasn't, you know, focusing on the flavors. I was just like, this is good wine. <laughs> yeah, yes. Uh, definitely a really nice dessert wine, or if you are into the sweeter, fruitier wines, um, it doesn't have any sparkling carbonationness to it, but it's still really good. And then the raspberry sangria is a red wine, definitely more of a berry flavor to it. So you get that like bright burst of, of raspberry on the front of the palate. And then some, like, strawberry and a little bit of blueberry on the back of the palate. Uh, it's good. It's great. Like, again, both super sweet. And the best part, I haven't talked about the best part yet. The best part is, so even though these are normal size bottles, they do not come in the big jugs, unfortunately. But uh, $3 and change for each bottle of wine. Seriously, less than $4. Per bottle. Like, I, I, I'm not making this up. It is so cheap. So if you're looking for something to kind of, you know, brighten up your quarantine, something to kind of, you know, bring a little bit more flavor into you know, whatever you're doing, something, you know, stick an umbrella in it, your glass, and pretend you're on the beach or something. I don't know. Whatever you want to do. But, like, I cannot recommend these wines enough. They really just made they made me really happy <laughs> no they did like no they were really they were good. really good wines they're really good wines especially for the price point they're nothing spectacular but they're just really sweet and really fruity and really really good so the watermelon looks like a more of like a rosé type wine so i'm assuming that it's going to have kind of like that manufactured almost like a jolly rancher watermelon taste mm. to it 
I'm I'm assuming I don't know obviously, but I do plan on picking that up and trying it. So. I mean, for three bucks and change, right? Like, like what do you got to lose? Even if you don't like it, it's like ah, eh, I tried a wine and I didn't like it. No big deal. But they are really sweet. So like, if you're not into sweet wines, they may not be for you. But they're just they're really good. Definitely made my Saturday night. Yeah, along with the the sushi that we had. So. What, what do we have coming up? Well, next week is the big one, episode 200. What? We're going to party. It's it's going to be interesting. We're, I'll bring some of those wines. Yeah, we're going to be doing our uh our um top 5 characters of all time with multiple um honorable mentions, I'm we're sure. We're going to try to keep the honorable mentions to the I already minimum. have 600 characters and I just thought of another one that I should probably write down. <laughs> um but we're going to be doing that. We're going to be discussing, uh, hopefully, other people's picks as well. Yes, yeah, so we want to hear from you. So email us, voicemail us, throwdownthursdaypodcast at gmail.com. We want to know your top five characters of all time. And we want to, you know, see how many people have overlapping characters. We want to see how many people, you know... What we'd like, what I'd like to do, honestly, as the uh, the producer of the show, is like I'd like to give one of ours, and then like have somebody, you know, have somebody give their list, discuss it, and then give another one of ours, and, ha- and then discuss somebody else's list, and you know, have a bunch of lists. You know, a, a lot of uh, people participate. I'd love to have that. So, if uh, if you have a chance, you want to send that over to us. You want to. Um, Again, when we say voicemail, just means record something on your phone and send it over, because um, we'd uh, we'd love to hear from you. Plus, we want to make sure everybody's doing well during the uh, pandemic. Hopefully, you're not in Michigan with those maniacs that decided to do Operation Gridlock and and just yeah, uh, we don't need to talk about that. Um, yeah, a lot of craziness happening right now, but we want to hear from you. Yeah, take your mind off your what's going on outside. Top five, and, and this is going to be hard because I've started working on my list and I've changed it about 20 times already. Oh, I just keep adding and then I'm just going to whittle it down once I get to the point where I feel like I'm in a good place. So we definitely want to hear from you. Who are your top five characters of all time from Anything, films, TV, literary, comics, you name it. Maybe it's your favorite personality. I don't know. Yeah. But there's a lot of really good characters out there, and uh, there's a lot of characters that mean a lot to you. So we want to hear who they are. So um, I think that's all. Um, That's all I got. That's all I got. So I guess with that being said, we will see See you you next next Thursday. Thursday. Bye, preciouses.
Can never go home.